University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Deconstruction Workers. As always, I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and today's Deconstruction Worker joining me in the Deconstruction Zone is Jonathan Alexandratos. He is from beautiful New York. New York? Somewhere in New York. Where in New York are you, Jonathan? Astoria, Queens, in a very small, cramped apartment. Uh, <laughs> you say beautiful, but I'm looking out my window right now, and I'm just not seeing it, Chris. <laughs> in full disclosure, I have never been to Queens, so I wouldn't know. Oh, okay. Home of Spider-Man. Home of Spider-Man and LL Cool J, I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think those are your two claims to fame. There's George's parents on Seinfeld. I'm sure some of the Mets must live here, right? That would make sense. Excellent. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm grasping at straws now. <laughs> Jonathan, aside from his work within academia, is also a playwright. He is a podcaster himself. So you're bringing a lot to the table here today, my friend. Oh, well, I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I brought you here to talk about is one of my favorite things to talk about that nobody else really wants to talk with me about, which is action figures. I can't believe nobody else wants to talk to you about that. The only people who want to talk to me about that are you and other deconstruction worker type people. Okay. I have this vast collection of various kinds of action figures, which we can talk a little bit about today. But when people walk into my office, they look around and they say, wow, this is really cool. And then I say, oh, let me tell you about this one, or let me tell you about this one, or let me tell you about this. And then you watch people's eyeballs glaze over. So exactly. Action figures to a lot of people I find are like a distraction. It's like I'll pull an action figure out because I'm one who goes places with action figures. I always just stuff one in my pocket or something. And, you know, I'm a fidgety person, so I'll take it out and start playing with it. And people will be like, oh, that's so cool. But it's always this distraction. And it's like, yeah, 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 no, but let me get back to the, the real conversation if, as if that's not part of it. I should preface this conversation by saying I am a pretty hardcore collector. I collect a variety of things. The biggest thing that I collect are Transformers. And I've been collecting Transformers since I was about 10 years old, right when Transformers first started, all the way back in the 1980s. And I have collected pretty consistently since then. Mm -hmm. So I've amassed this vast collection of Transformers. At some point, which we will talk about later today, because this is a regular point of contention between you and I, <laughs> which we can talk about. Uh, at some point, I stopped taking them out of the box. Oh, man. Because I yeah. didn't want to take them out of the box anymore. Yeah. So I have this giant collection of Transformers that I used to play with. And then I have this giant collection of Transformers, which nobody is ever allowed to play with ever. ever. <laughs> and so they sort of exist in this dual world. So we can talk a little bit about that. I thought we could do a little bit of history of why we have action figures in the first place, where they come from. And I don't know, we'll just see where the conversation takes us. You know, much like you said with collecting action figures your whole life and you have that specific love of Transformers, I also have a long history with action figures. Basically, my first living memory 
memories are with action figures as a kid. And I think that matters. I mean, I think that it matters that these are objects that were there at the very, very first formative years of my life, your life. And I think probably my whole art as a person, both as a playwright and as an academic, has been to just hold on to that. When I was sort of coming of age into school, there was this idea that whatever you did, whether it be academically or creatively, has to be sort of a rejection of whatever it is you're doing in your personal life. So like whatever you have as a hobby, that's fine, but don't let it seep into the serious work. And I'm just like, well, that is total nonsense. Like I think that what you do, what your impulses, your natural kind of tendencies are, matter. And I think that finding ways to scholarize that and finding ways to put it on stage is part of my play. It's part of how I play with them now. And I think that that can be said for people with many, many, many different interests. But for us, I think it just happens to be toys, which I think are great because, I mean, they're fun. You bring up an interesting, and maybe this is a good way, good place to jump into this conversation. This idea of play, I think, is very important to us culturally and as a species. Mm -hmm. as animals on this planet. I spend a lot of time, because my specialty in children's media, spend a lot of time both in play with children and watching children play amongst themselves as part of my interest in child development. And one of the things that I cannot get my brain around, either as a scholar or really as a human being on this planet, Mm -hmm. is at some point there is this switch that gets flipped in the brain of a human being where society tells them it's not okay for them to play anymore. Mm -hmm. Now's the time to be mature or now's the time to be an adult or now's the time to not play imaginatively mm -hmm. in the ways you've always done. You're allowed to play prescriptively as an adult Mm -hmm. You're allowed to let other people tell you the ways in which you're allowed to play. So you're allowed to play golf, for example, which has rules and walls around it mm -hmm. in terms of what you can and can't do. You're allowed to play video games as an adult, but video games tell you a very specific way you're allowed to play them and in no other way. You're allowed to play chess mm -hmm. or Monopoly even, or any other form of board game, but those games, again, lots of rules, lots of prescription about what you're supposed to do. What you're yeah. not supposedly, quote unquote, allowed to do is go to the store, go to the toy aisle, buy a bunch of X-Men action figures and then play X-Men. Mm -hmm. You're not really supposed to do that. You're not really allowed to do that because society tells you that's not the way in which adults get to play anymore. Yeah. Anything, yeah. anything sort of open world or open-ended in terms of your imagination is somehow looked down upon in our society. I mean, I think it's a large part of the reason why people make fun of adults who play role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Sure. You're not supposed to use your imagination in those ways anymore once you're an adult, mm -hmm. which I find tremendously sad. I mean, it's traumatic and it's heartbreaking to hear because obviously like that switch has not been flipped with me. I don't think necessarily with you either. I, but I do think on a general level, that's true. I think that that is out there. And I think there are a number of reasons for it. 
economics and capitalism don't help this idea that the imagination is not profitable. Therefore, why would you want to relish in it? This idea that we've got lots and lots of media equating that kind of imaginative play with a lack of success, whether it be in terms of romance or in terms of job or in terms of family or whatever. This idea that it's escapism. We don't want our adults to escape. We want our adults to be good citizens of the world and contributing in a productive and practical way. All of these things are things that I reject wholeheartedly, but I think that these are tropes that are out there and they're damaging to the preservation of imagination, which I think is why I need creative work in my life and why I do play. I mean, I was just in Toys R Us last night and doing that very thing, buying action figures so that I can then go home and play with them. But there certainly weren't many of me, you know, as far as I can tell. And, and so, yeah, no, it's, it is a societal problem, I think. And it's a shame. And I don't know how to make the case for reclaiming it on a societal level also, because there's a level of privilege that comes with it, I think, is that I have the means to go to the toy store and I have the means to block off a period of time where I can fall into this imaginative world and not have to worry about my second or third or fourth job or my child or, you know, something like that. So I, I have to be sort of conscious of that aspect of play now as an adult. I do think that's a valid point in that play is a privilege as an adult. Yeah. I can see where someone might say, well, I don't have time to play because I have to work a 12 hour shift and then come home and make dinner for my kids and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I totally get that. And so in some respects, play is a luxury, but leisure time in and of itself is a luxury. Absolutely. So if you are afforded the luxury of leisure time, why should you not be afforded the privilege of utilizing that leisure time however you want to? No reason. I mean, there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't be. There is nothing officially forbidding you from doing this. What's holding us back from engaging in that kind of play, I think, is all societal and, and it's all sort of in the appearance of it. Or, you know, what if somebody finds out? Look, I mean, I remember when I would go to a Toys R Us as a late teenager, I would actually break out in a sweat when I was in there. What if somebody saw me? What am I going to say? What's my story for being in this place? And sometimes when an employee would come up to me at that point in my life, you know, I was 18, 19 or whatever, feeling like society was kind of telling me I'm a little too old to be here. I would just sort of say, oh, I'm just looking for something for my cousin and, you know, or whatever. Right. But then as I got past that, I sort of was like, all right, no, I'm here for me. And there's no shame in that. But if you, right. if you can dress up like you know, a big or blob and go to a baseball game and cheer on this team and, and that's totally normal. This is totally normal too. I still run into this even now at this point in my life where if I'm in Target let's say and I have a shopping cart and it's full of seven boxes of Transformers, which mm -hmm. sometimes it is, especially if I can happen to get there on the one day they restock the shelves and they have new stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and I roll I in there. <laughs> then when I roll up to the counter and I put all that on the counter, I am very comfortable with saying, this is all for me and I'm a collector. Yeah. And the person behind the counter oftentimes already knows that because who buys seven boxes of Transformers at the same time? <laughs> yeah. But if I'm in there sometimes and I'm just getting one, yeah. there's a part of me that kind of feels like, mm, I should go get something else too, <laughs> so that it looks like this is just a part of why I came here and not the specific reason I walked in this store, which it 
it totally is. Right, right. It's like you don't just want to buy condoms. You want to buy something with the condoms. It's like, you know, you don't want to buy a toy. You want to buy something with the toy. So you can be like, no, no, no. It's toothpaste. That's why I'm here. (laughs) That's why I'm here. And I happen to see this and maybe it would be cool for the imaginary son that I don't (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, the miracle of self-checkout. But I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's true. I now am sort of in the habit of just talking to people in Toys R Us. And, and usually, yes, when people see me with a stack of toy boxes in my hands, they're just like, oh, you know, you, you have a you have a young one at home? It's like, nope, these are for me. I, I just really like them. <laughs> I don't know what the response has been for you, but whenever I say that, there's always been kind of a look of joy in the other person. It's never really been a, whoa, I'm creeped out kind of thing. It's a, whoa, I can't believe you admitted that. That's really cool. Then it's right. almost like they're sort of in tune with all the stuff that they do, because we all have something, I think, that, not in a creepy way, but something that we, a hobby that we have or or something that we do that we're afraid of how other people would perceive it. But when we just sort of share what it is we're into, we sort of destigmatize it and then the other person can go, oh yeah, maybe I'm not a toy collector, but I really like collecting stamps and I'm, I'm afraid people will judge me if I tell people that I collect stamps. But since you shared that, I can share this and we're all sort of in this realm of let's just put it out there. I also think there's an element of, particularly when it comes to toy collecting, what kind of toy you collect also can either enhance or reduce the amount of sort of stigma or judginess of people you tell. Yeah. For example, when someone walks into my office and they look around and they see, oh, you collect superhero action figures. That's what I have in here, superhero action figures. Everything from Star Wars to Marvel to DC. I collect hero action figures. Right. And so someone comes in and they start at the front of my office and they say, see all the Star Wars stuff. And they say, oh, you collect Star Wars. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And then they see Marvel and they say, oh, you collect Marvel. That's really cool. And then they see the DC. Oh, that's really cool. And then they get to the WWE stuff and then they go, oh, you like professional wrestling too? Mm-hmm. And you can feel the judgment rising mm-hmm. as they move <laughs> to things they do not see as as cool as the first ones they saw. Right. And that probably has a long history, I would imagine, in their lives where at some point that one thing was colored as uncool and this other thing was colored as cool. And from when I was a kid, I remember playing Pokemon cards with my friends and one of the jocks kind of walked in on us and said to me, like, very seriously, I would not let anyone know you're playing that and i was just like uh okay Okay, you know. So now, fast forward to today, if you don't do anything to engage those texts that you think are uncool, you will still think that they're uncool. So that, I think, says more probably about the person who's viewing the item than the item itself, or you. I think that we need toy spaces to really start to to mix these toy texts with each other, these figures, these dolls, to try to address this issue. You just said something really interesting that I think is a nice segue into what we were going to talk about today, which is you said these action figures, and then you said these dolls. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because that split was originally very intentional. Mm Yep. When the phrase action figure was coined, it was coined specifically so that nobody at Hasbro would refer to the 12 inch GI Joes that were being produced as dolls because they didn't think boys would buy them if they were called dolls. Right. And so they came up with this new term, action figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that original 
intention, that original split, gendered the development of that particular kind of toy forever, yeah. even up until now. Yeah. When you say action figure, it presumes boy. Yeah, it does now. Call me naive. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think that will change for the better eventually. I agree. We're not there now. But you look at DC Superior Girls, I think, is an excellent example because you've got these larger size dolls that are well-articulated dolls. I mean, they're, they're not the traditional Barbies in the sense of the, what, five, six points of articulation. No, they've, they've got, you know, elbow joints and wrist joints. 15 points of articulation, I think, on those. I mean, there you go. And I am actually a fan of your argument available in Articulating the Action Figure, edited by me out now by McFarland. Buy it on Amazon. Um, I am a fan of <laughs> your argument that it comes down to articulation. And articulation questions this divide between doll and action figure so that, yeah, if you buy a Monster High doll or a DC Superhero Girls doll, it's very well articulated. And so, yeah, you have this sort of scale difference, but but that's also not really a, a perfect science. Especially now with Marvel releasing a lot of their superhero action figures in yeah. the 12-inch line. Right. Right, exactly. That sort of thing feels like sort of the protoplasm out of which will hopefully grow this degendering of toys, which I would love to see. And, and again, I could totally be being naive or overly optimistic about this, but I think it's a necessary process. I mean, and I'm encouraged, you know, Star Wars Forces of Destiny, those dolls are in the action figure section right next to those Marvel large size, giant size Titans Heroes dolls, I would presume, whatever we want to call them. This is the split that I often make as well, which has nothing to do with points of articulation, although I do extensively argue that points of articulation is a good way to tell an action figure from a traditional doll. But I do also think size matters. We have been conditioned, and th this is on Hasbro, and I give them 100% credit for this, yeah. but we have been conditioned to see an action figure as something that ranges from that 3.5 inch size to maybe nine inches at the most. Right. And once you hit the 12 inch size and above, you're really into doll territory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then I, I would imagine, too, at a certain point, even that has to stop because now we have these gigantic stormtroopers. And I don't know what you want to call those. I guess the, the three foot yeah, tall. Ones. Yeah. 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 Like, and I, I mean, I guess we could call them dolls. I, I mean, they just seem like these gargantuan things. I've seen those in a lot of different kinds, too. Yeah. Star Wars. I've seen Ninja Turtles. Yep. I've seen in these giant literal child size. Right. I don't even know what to call statues at this point. I don't even know yeah. what to call I guess it reminds me of the My Size Barbie, which, uh, you know, I guess that was early 90s, maybe. Uh, maybe it was earlier than that. You know, that kind of feels like one of the earliest examples of these kinds of things. And now, is it safe for boys to have them too? <laughs> Something that's like my size, quote unquote. I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. I haven't bought any of those because I have no place to put them. But I do like posing for photos next to the stormtroopers. I think I have almost every piece of merchandise that has Ray mm -hmm. from Star Wars. Yeah. I think I have almost every toy Ray ever made, except for the giant three foot one, which again, I don't have anywhere to put either. Exactly, exactly. But that class of toys, I'm actually really interested to know how well those are selling because I always see bunches of them in the store and I, I just, I don't know 
are there that many people buying them? I have no clue. I mean, that's all sort of a tangent from your original point about the scale issue. And yeah, I mean, I think scale is probably the way we have to go. And I guess that what? We can trace that back to a need of toys that is perceived as feminine, even though it's not, which is just the need to put cloth clothing on uh, a toy. So therefore, if you're going to make a dress for your toy, you probably should make it about 11.5, 12 inches so that you can actually get fabric that flows properly. And that's probably not at all how we would conceive of it now. Now we've just got, oh, well, it's, you know, we've got got these toys that have always been a foot tall or always been 11.5 inches tall and that's just what they are but I don't know I feel like the need originally was very practical like I don't think you could do the cloth clothing as well with something that's six inches I also wonder if sculpting was an issue as well Mm -hmm. where before we had computer guided sculpting and 3D modeling and the like where you have to make it bigger in order to get the level of detail that you wanted I mean if you look at a G.I. Joe Mm -hmm. They specifically made those so that all the parts were interchangeable. So they only had to cast three different torsos, three different heads, three different legs, three different arms, and then they could mix and match to create new characters. Or if you look at the first run of Transformers and how many of those were not only engineered in the same way, but used the same molds with different surface details, but the actual engineering was the same for those molds. And so I have this van and then I put the sirens on top Mm -hmm. of it and now the van is an ambulance. Right, which they're still doing. Because that makes sense to cut down on the number of molds and you just recolor the plastic in order to make which characters you want. As opposed to now, when I look at the Star Wars action figures, the amount of detail is out of this world because of 3D modeling and computer guided sculpting. The other side to that too, if we're talking about different bodies of toy, Barbie fashionistas, you know, is pretty awesome, I think, in the sense that they're at least trying to make Barbie dolls with different body types and say, you know, here's the original three or four body types that could represent different size women. You know, I, there's a documentary out now on this on uh, Hulu and Roxanne Gay is in it and she's got this awesome moment where she looks at one and she's like, oh, okay, this is supposed to be curvy. But so, you know, the work's not quite done yet, but it's an interesting amount of progress, you know, in terms of saying, let's actually make the fact that we can mold body types perhaps easier today than we could. Let's take that and maybe make a statement out of it, such as there are all different sizes of person that can be this body or this character and that's okay so yeah like i agree with you the 3.75 inch star wars figures and even the most recent gi joes of a few years ago those look great i mean for that scale but then even on the larger scale on mattel's side with the barbie fashionistas there's some really cool stuff happening there too and yeah i mean maybe it all comes back to the ease with which we can mold stuff now and perhaps the cheapness of well probably oil time they're making this stuff and i look at For example, right now I'm staring across my office at this Star Wars Black Series, Jyn Erso. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when you look at that figure, it is Felicity Jones. It looks exactly like her in a way that they didn't need to encase her face in plaster as they would have had to do 20 years ago. They probably put sensors all over her skin and then literally 3D coded her face into the computer and re-sculpted it in plastic for this figure at the 3.75 inch size. That technology is, um, if you told people 30 years ago that someday we were gonna be able to map your face (laughs) and make 
action figures that look exactly like you, right. people would think you were... <sighs> yeah, and literally exactly like you. I have an action figure of myself that I sent away photos for. Well, a friend of mine... My wife has one yeah. of those. And, and, you know, you get this thing in the mail, and it's basically like a Mego of you. Her friends got it for her for her PhD graduation, <laughs> and it literally looks exactly like her to a point where it's kind of creepy. Yeah. And what's interesting about that then is this coming alongside this whole movement for retro toys, uh, reaction, you know, I mean, those those figures are molded right after the that old sort of 70s kind of 80s style. So if you get a Pulp Fiction action figure from reaction, it looks like one of those Star Wars figures from the early 80s. And I wonder then if that's not an example of some pushback to the technological advancements that have happened. You know, so there's a group of people that are going, yeah, but I really actually miss my old style. Like, I really kind of want that. And there's a company, well, really Funko, who's like, okay, yeah, we'll make that easily. I want to push back on that slightly and move us in a little bit different direction because I have a full set of reactions in my yeah. office the whole Dark Crystal line. Yep. So there were seven figures in that line, one of which was only available at San Diego Comic-Con. It cost me a pretty penny to I'm get sure. it, but I do have it because I wanted the full set because I have a problem. I get, um, I get that, so me too. <laughs> I wanted the full set, so it did cost me a penny. But these figures are clearly not meant to be opened. And the reason I say that is because these figures, even the small ones, the four-inch figures, there are two of them, that the Jen and Kira are both four-inch figures. Each one of those costs $19.99. The way that the packaging is designed and the way that they are boxed and the way that they're displayed, particularly the large-scale figures, the Gartham and the Landstrider yeah. and the Chanter within the boxes, when you, if you ever see the boxes, they are clearly designed to be displayed yeah. in the package. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, but also Dark Crystal is an interesting example because, I mean, that was built off of the proposed and never made wave that they were going to do right around the movie. And those boxes and that packaging are designed to match that packaging that never came out perfectly. And it does. And those toys pretty much do. Uh, I don't know if you have the book, The Toys That Time Forgot by Blake Wright, but he's got pictures of the whole original prototypes and everything for the Dark Crystal and compares them to what's out now. And they do, they line up really nicely. So I don't think that people who are going for the reaction figures are necessarily getting them because they miss slaying with them. But I think that there's a sense of when you see that packaging and the figure together, that they transport you to that kind of time in, in action figure style. And I think that that's meaningful for a lot of collectors. So I guess I would just amend with the reaction figures, it's the whole unit, except for Tomorrowland, which I don't know why anybody would buy those. Well, but I also have two different Lilus from the fifth element that are Funko reactions. And now I have a bunch of 11s from Stranger Things. My daughter has the 11s from Stranger Things as well. She's 12 years old and she already knew when I bought them for her and gave them to her, and perhaps this is my own psychosis rubbing off on my kid. But when I handed them to her, she was like, oh, this is the kind I don't uh, open. <laughs> 
So she kind of already knew yeah. there are toys that are made for you to play with, and then there are toys that are made for you to collect in and of themselves in the way they're packaged. I think that we have two words that signify that perfectly, Chase Edition. When you see that on the package, and I have the Stranger Things Chase Edition figures, that is sort of a big signal that says, leave this as is, leave this as, you know, in the package. Of course, it's not like the action figure police will descend on your house if you open it, but, you know, clearly there is some intent there that says you know, this is more now a collector's item as opposed to something that is supposed to live in this imaginary playscape that you're making although they might for example i will i'll tell you a yeah. quick story so one of the other deconstruction workers uh, rick stevens who oh, rick. listeners will have either already met or will be meeting shortly in episodes he has a son who is small single digits and he bought him for Christmas last year, a commemorative edition reissue Transformers Perceptor. Uh-huh. Yep. Within the reissue line, which came out in the early 2000s, within that reissue line, Perceptor was really hard to find as a commemorative edition. He bought it, he gave it to his son. It was brand new, mint in sealed box, which is the phrase that we use in the toy collection. MISB, mint in sealed box. He bought it for him, he gave it to him, he let him open it and play with it, and I had a visceral reaction like, what are you See, and doing? I love that, I, I love that, I, I'm all for it. I'm just like, yeah, let's totally mess with that. I'm cool. I totally get why. To me, that feels very much like the guy who shoots the last passenger pigeon and then says, tasted good to me. <laughs> No, I, I think it's there's childhood innocence in that. He doesn't have mind. He just wants it to live in his universe and screw the capitalistic drive to keep it, you know, MISB and, and all that nonsense. He, he wants to open it. He wants to play with it. I think that's so cool. Let him. I say let him. Though for me, the drive is not necessarily capitalistic. I don't keep all of these toys in the boxes because I think they're going to be worth more someday. Right. That's not why I collect. I think in some way I am trying to, I feel more like a historian who has found artifacts in the ground. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to preserve them in their original state. Yeah. Why? I don't know. But I feel this drive to That's do so. That's totally fair, actually. Because I'll tell you what, I know we go back and forth on opening stuff, but the reality is I have a lot of stuff, MISB or MOC, too. MOC being mint on card. Correct. By yes. The way. And the reason I do is actually very similar to the reason you do with a slight tweak for some of them. But there is definitely if I find something that if it's a toy that I had when I was a kid that I subsequently lost and I get it on card, even if it's not necessarily mint on card. So the card could be bad and bent or whatever. I still want to leave it in the package because to me, there is a sense of preservation and to me there, the artifact is not so much a toy artifact, it's an artifact of myself. And I'm preserving that self artifact by keeping that figure in the package and putting it up on my wall and looking at it. And in that, I'm sort of admiring a, a period of my life or a moment in my life, which I, I guess is very self-centered, but but it's true. The, the one tweak I would sort of make to that sort of ideology is that some of the other stuff that I leave in the package, I leave in the package because I just think it looks cool in the package. Like when Art Asylum made their Star Trek figures, I have all of them in the package because I love the way those bubbles look and the way everything 
everything is sort of arranged in there. I just think they look so cool that way. But yeah, I totally go along with the artifact idea. And in fact, my friend Tom Seymour did a documentary on my collection and called it Artifact for that reason. And so I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you there. But by the same token, I also have a full set of very expensive, this company NECA, full set of very expensive NECA, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They are done in the original 1984 Eastman and Laird style, which is the TMNT that I collect. And when I got the fourth one, I felt this overwhelming urge to open them up. (laughs) And so I did. I opened all four of them and they're in this office. They are one of... They are one of maybe 10 toys in this office that are open. Uh Yeah. Because I just kind of wanted to play with them. That's awesome. And so I opened them, which I don't, which you know, I don't ever, ever do. Yeah. I I mean, but I think that that's awesome that you did that. And see, that's the impulse that I think we were talking about earlier that, you know, when we're talking about society and what society kind of favors for adults and then sort of looks down upon, you kind of listen to your impulse there, whether it be kind of a a childhood impulse to want to play with these or whether it be like an impulse to say, oh, I just, I want to see how I interact with these now. Like, I think that's so cool. Like you kind of ran an experiment and you're like, let me crack this open and see what happens. I did. I probably should have maybe not chosen the most expensive (laughs) toys I've bought in a really long time to do that with, but I I really wanted to do, I really, really want, I wanted to put the weapons in their hands and I wanted to see what they could do in terms of posing and I just, I wanted to see. Did you, um, are those the black and white ones or are they the, um, no, they're the the full full color color ones, but they are, all four have the red mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have this sort of elongated face, oh, sure. the really long necks. They are the original. The sculpting on them is amazing. Yeah, no, it is. As you would, as you would expect from, <laughs> you know, figures that are running in the high double digits. Yeah, yeah. I hear even the knockoffs are pretty good, but but yeah, I mean, of course, like they're nothing compared to you know having the original thing, which I know that's actually something we've talked about before. Sort of that whole third market, you know, or, or third party kind of stuff, both for Transformers and for this, and um, kind of how that steps in. And it's like, oh, did you not get that Ninja Turtle? Well, well, here it is. This one's pretty. Good. And this one's only like yeah. $20 a piece, so you can buy this. <laughs> right. People, uh, I'm guessing most listeners don't know this, but there is a huge, huge both knockoff market and what we call third-party figure right. market. And there's a difference between these two things. So the, the, the knockoff market is a legitimate knockoff. They go in, in the case of something like Transformers, for example, Transformers has what's called the masterpiece line. They're made by Takara Tomy in Japan, the original company that made Transformers. They are very highly articulated. They're very complex. They run between 85 and upwards of $200 a piece. They are lots of die cast metal in them. They are very, very expensive and they are very, very yeah. nice. These are not toys that are made for children. These are toys that are made for adult collectors of this property. There is a set of knockoffs made by Takasa Tony. Yes, which I have some of. I love them. <laughs> Takasa Tony that are largely plastic. Yeah. There is some die cast yeah. in them, but they are literally the exact same yeah. molds. Whether that is someone who worked on the line yep. in China assemb- or Japan assembling them yeah. and just took yeah. one. 
and then recast all Which, the parts and made new by ones. By the way, on that note, can we appreciate for a second how hard that truly must be? Because, you know, I, I've done a lot of reading about these factories in China where these things are made. There's some documentary material, but all in all, it's quite heavily controlled. But the reality of it is you've got workers who are like living in these factories. They're searched all the time to make sure they're not doing this. And, and yet these sort of knockoffs still make it out, which is really just wild to me. So you've got the true knockoffs. That is the exact replica of the thing that's being put out by Takaratome. But then you also have what are called third-party figures. And third-party figures are, for example, again in Transformers, and I am just keep coming back to Transformers because it's the toy collection that I know, but I know it happens in other venues as sure. well, where they'll take a character like Bumblebee, yeah. for example, and they'll make different versions of Bumblebee, big ones, small ones, whatever, that they will engineer themselves, yep. that will be highly articulated, that will have lots of detail, that are in many ways better than what Hasbro or what Takara Tomi are putting out. Yeah. They'll price them, in some cases, exponentially more yeah. for the really highly detailed, highly collectible right. ones. For example, Masterpiece Grimlock. Giant Dinobot, dinosaur, when it came out, it cost $120 on the mm -hmm. shelf. Somebody made a third party masterpiece slag, sludge, swoop, and snarl, which are the other four Dinobots, yep. in the same size as Masterpiece Grimlock or scaled in the case of the Masterpiece Sludge, because Sludge is bigger than Grimlock. So in the cartoons and in the comic books, so they made him bigger than the Masterpiece wow. Grimlock. Yeah. They are like 300 bucks yeah. a piece. Yeah. And I have seen pictures online of people who have full sets wow. of them dropping 1200, 1500 bucks for five Transformer toys that aren't made by Hasbro. Right, right, right. <laughs> they're, they're made by some independent dude in his basement and they're amazing yeah. and people collect those See, as and well. That, that interests me incredibly because what that basically is, and there are other examples of this too, is somebody recognized a hole in the official sort of narrative of this toy and they're like, well, I can fill it. Things are easy enough now where, you know, it sounds like whatever resources that person used to do that were probably sophisticated but with a 3d printer like you could fill a gap that you noticed in any of these toy narratives i mean the other day i was on ebay looking up a specific piece they made a specific part for a very recent rodimus action figure and also for the the evil version rodimus unicron Okay, where it's just a three-inch piece that goes over the front of it so that the front of the cab can look more accurate to what it was in the cartoon. And that was $14.99 for like three inches worth of plastic. And it's like, well, I have to buy that. It doesn't look accurate unless I have that. Well, and this is how these third-party companies first got into the business of being third-party companies in the first place. Because there was a line of Transformers where they released an Ultra Magnus. An Ultra Magnus was literally just a recolor of the Optimus oh, Prime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you know anything about Transformers, you know Ultra Magnus does not look like Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime has a tractor trailer trailer. Ultra Magnus has a car carrier trailer. Right. And so this company, the very first third party company made a car carrier trailer that you could attach to the official Hasbro Ultra Magnus that then when you transformed Ultra Magnus, you could fit him inside of the trailer transformed to create mm -hmm. armor 
for him that turned him into the cartoon slash comic book version of Ultra Magnus. Mm -hmm. So the original third party companies were making add-ons mm -hmm. to the official Hasbro figures, which they still do in a lot of cases. For example, like you said, this piece of this Rodimus Unicronus, yeah. or the pieces that you can use when you buy, say you buy all five Stunticons. You want to combine them into Menasaur. Yep. The Stunticons are five robots, and then you can transform them and put them all together and make one big robot. And there's a company that will make connector pieces that will give you elbows that bend mm -hmm. or fingers that close or you know you can bend them at the knee in a way that if you don't have those pieces it's a very static figure when you put it together the next logical step up from this or just step over from this is if we look at what's going on on kickstarter where you have action figure companies sort of starting up there and a lot of them what they're trying to do is fill gaps not necessarily in the sense of oh the transformers never had this so i'm going to make this transformers thing but there's one that started to fill a, a gender gap for example uh, I Am Elemental figures by Julie Kerwin. I mean, she started that company because she had two sons and was like, look, they don't have any original female superheroes to play with. So she's now made two waves worth of original female superheroes, which I use in class all the time. I mean, we, we write about them and work with them pretty constantly. And they're these original heroes that all represent a different virtue and they all are, are women and they all represent, they all sort of stem from different female icons. And it's a really cool kind of activist feminist line that she did that. She thought of it and it happened and she could make it happen because of Kickstarter and because of the way Kickstarter can then link you up with companies that can facilitate production. So that could be a real game changer, specifically when it comes to issues like this with representation. Full disclosure, I Am Elemental does not sponsor this podcast and I'm going to plug them anyway for free because they're that good and important of a company. You should go online and check out their action figures. They're pretty fantastic. They're amazing. So action figures in conclusion, what? In conclusion, action figures and toys are texts and our ability to read them is important for all the reasons we've discussed and surely even more so. So I hope that people will take this episode and think back to their own toys and maybe even take an active role in the toy marketplace and then start writing about them and start playing with them and start engaging with these once again. And if we've ignited somebody's fire for toys, then I think we've done our job. I would come down on pretty much the exact same side. I would say in conclusion, play is important. Play was important when you were a kid. It was important when you were five. It was important when you were 10. It was important when you're 15. And it's really, really important, especially in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. I think we as a culture have lost our ability to play in ways that should make us sad. We let other people tell us how to use our imaginations all the time, and we sort of lose the ability to use that imagination on its own. It's like any other muscle, it atrophies, especially if you coddle it. It's why when you get surgery, they make you work the muscle out rather than just sit there. And I think your imagination is the same way. So I would highly encourage people to spend some time in the toy aisle, to find something that sparks their imagination, to play a little. I try to play as much as I can. To be quite honest, if you have children, you have no excuse. If you have children, you should play with them because they know how to play and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bottom yeah. line. They know how to play and you don't. So they'll teach you how to do it. 
that's where I come down on it. Toys are important, but more important than the toys themselves is the play that toys generate. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There's a reason that the stick is in the Toy Hall of Fame. So, ladies and gentlemen, for the deconstruction workers, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This is Jonathan Alexandratos. Please check him out. You can find links to his stuff on our webpage. All right, Jonathan. Well, thanks for your time, bro. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.